Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Chatter, our episode on cardiovascular health today. We have great guests with us. And before we get we get going, um, I'd like to recognize our great staff, which includes Aaron Collins, who today is, is standing in for um, Matthew Campbell, who's normally our production person who's on his way back from South Dakota. Um, Aaron is one of our, our researchers, along with uh, Maddie Levine-Wolf, both do production, or excuse me, research. And Matthew Campbell is our production guru. So thank you to all of them. Without them, this particular podcast would not be possible. In addition, I always call him esteemed because he is. My great colleague, Clarence Jones, who together we cover um, a health side of the conversation and a community side of the conversation as we proceed with all the different subjects in, in health, and there are many of them. Today we have, uh, we're going to be focusing on cardiovascular health, and we have two great colleagues of mine with me, Dr. Steve Kopecki from uh, Mayo Clinic, practicing cardiologist who works with um, statin-resistant people, right? Is that correct, Steve? You work with, are you still focusing on, on that in your in your practice? Yes, uh, also called stubbornly high, stubbornly high cholesterol. Okay, there you go. <laughs> in addition, I wanna put in a, um, while I have Steve going here, I wanna plug his his book, which I think is, is really good. It's called Live, younger, longer. Um, it's, he wrote it with, uh, with his colleagues at the Mayo Clinic. It's, it's really a, a wonderful book that really focuses on the uh, prevention side of the equation in cardiovascular health. And we'll get into it. Well, Steve, thanks for being here. Uh, Justin Bell is um, the uh, Vice President of, of Health Strategies at the American Heart Association, longtime colleague. Both of these people are have been the co-chair for the Cardiovascular Health Alliance in the state of Minnesota for a few years now and have done a wonderful job in, in leading that professional group of, of cardiovascular professionals. So thank you. Thank you for being with us. And off we go into cardiovascular health. So here's the first question that I really have that should kick this all off. You know, I've been involved or have been involved in cardiovascular health for um, a long time. And so I really, really want to know, are we getting better? Are we truly addressing cardiovascular health? A better way and are we seeing better numbers my guess is no but i want to hear your perspectives on this so steve you want to take it away first yeah that's a great uh, question in that if you look at you know going back 120 years the average lifespan was about 46 years the beginning 1900 then in 2000 the average lifespan was in the mid to late 70s so we made tremendous strides and that was primarily initially in the century from uh, you know, clean water and vaccinations and uh, such. And now in the later half of the century was more reduction of heart disease. Now, unfortunately, what has happened in the last 20, 30 years, this obesity epidemic has taken over. And now about 43 or 44% of Americans are obese and as adults. And so in the last few years, we've actually seen a decline in our lifespan. Now, that obviously had something to do with the pandemic, but a lot of those deaths were heart, heart deaths. In fact, heart deaths remained the number one cause of death, even during the pandemic, uh, unfortunately. And so, we, you know, we really aren't making the progress anymore like we used to make in reducing death and increasing lifespan. It's very unfortunate, but because about 80% of this is our lifestyle. 
Yeah, that's really great to hear. I think, uh, thank you for that, because I, that was one of the first questions I was going to ask you is, you know, it, it appears to me, and I'm coming from a community perspective, and I'm seeing a lot more people dying younger. And uh, I'm just wondering if it's, is it because we, we're collecting better data or is there something seriously amiss uh, with us? And you're just saying that it's lifestyle. There are things that are going on in our lifestyle that's causing us to, to die younger. Is that Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right, Clarence, that uh, it, of interest, you know, if you look at the millennials, which were, you know, they're in their uh, late 20s to late 30s now, they are the, uh, they have the, uh, of all the generations, you know, the X, Y, the baby boomers, all that, the greatest generation, they have the highest stress levels, they have the highest blood pressure, they have the highest number of cardiovascular risk factors, and they have the worst diet in terms of ultra processed foods. And uh, so there, it's very tough on them, very high blood pressure. And, we, and you're exactly right. We are starting to see a lot earlier deaths uh, in that age group. So, uh, Justin, you know, coming from the artsy um, perspective, what do you think? I mean, I think Steve's obviously right when we talk about just the numbers and outcomes, but I think that there still are, are reasons to be optimistic. Uh, over time, there are things that we, the, there's a public perception and a public awareness that has gotten better. There's very few people that will argue that smoking is not bad for you. There are very few people that don't understand that there's a connection between high cholesterol and high blood pressure and heart disease. Changing people's behaviors is a whole nother deal. Like it's a whole nother step. But I think that there's a big part of that awareness where people know that these things are out there. People know warning signs of stroke. People know warning signs of, of other cardiovascular issues. So I think that there's opportunities there to get better and increasing that public awareness is the first step in sort of changing people's behaviors. And I think that there are things that are getting better there. You know, ideally, if, if, we, if we were doing all of this right, we'd all be out of work, right? Isn't that the ultimate? Uh, prevent heart disease and, 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 and stroke altogether, which gets us into one of the major thematic arenas. And, and, and you two certainly are, are aware of this. You are, you, of the arenas, we're talking about prevention, acute treatment, and these men. So let's talk about prevention. Steve, give me your, your overall perspective on prevention. Well, the prevention is, uh, you know, I'm a cardiologist. So what our institution gets paid to do is treat heart attacks and, you know, do bypasses and put in stents. If I was a businessman, my boss would come to me and say, why are you waiting until these problems occur? Why, why don't you cure the problem before it occur, you know, stop it from happening? And which is uh, not the way our system has been set up. But if you look at uh, a lot of our issues, uh, that um, our lifestyle issues, I think about this on like a compass, you know, north, south, east, west. Number one risk factor now for heart disease, early death uh, for anything, not just heart disease, uh, is nutrition, you know, what we're eating. And then east is exercise. We're not being active enough. Uh, south has a few things in it, obviously smoking. It has spirits, which means alcohol or substance abuse also has one thing that we've all forgotten about is sleep how important it is for us it's our rejuvenative restorative state that we all have to do and the last s is um, stress and who hasn't been under tremendous amounts of stress during the pandemic and then on the west is weight and weight surprisingly enough is the least important of all these things if you are physically active and physically and your heart is in good shape, you have good heart and lung conditioning, you know, you can be active without, uh, you know, feeling like you're going to die. That, um, that means that you're, you've lost a lot of your fat in your abdomen, which is what causes a lot of our problems. And, uh, so it's not so much the weight, it's the abdominal obesity or the abdominal fat that gets us into trouble. So those things, you know, nothing I never mentioned in there, high blood pressure. <laughs> I never mentioned high cholesterol. Those are diseases and we don't want those diseases to occur. We want to prevent them before they occur. But these factors all lead to the high blood pressure. They lead to the high cholesterol, which leads to the diabetes and heart disease and such. I have a question I want to ask. And I, and I think that both of you have really 
wonderfully entered into this conversation, which is that a lot of this information is um, is available uh, for people to really understand how to address some of these issues. And you just talked about eighty percent of it is something different than what we what we think. What would you say? What 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 would be the the message that you would tell people? I mean, if you could just you had a minute to just tell people this is this is something that that you really really need to do. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd like to hear from both of you. What is it that you would really, really tell people uh, in order to help them to understand the importance of cardiovascular health? Justin? Well, one of the things that we focus on at the Heart Association is knowing your numbers, that you can't treat something or prevent something that you don't know is a problem. So we, we advocate that people are having preventative health visits, having their blood pressure checked. And also we, we advocate for those, we used to call it Life Simple 7, but I'm glad that Steve mentioned sleep because we are now unveiling Life's Essential 8. And we've added sleep to those, uh, to those seven things that we've talked about before, blood pressure, healthy eating, exercise, not smoking, that you know, we all know the list. But just making people know that this is that it's treatable and it is preventable, and lifestyle changes are such a huge part of it. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. The um, you know one thing I think Clarence is important for people to know that, that no matter what they do to try to improve their health, it's never too little. Even a bite will make a difference after say a year. Trading a bite of a hot dog instead have mm. a, a bite of green beans. That's been shown to reduce heart attacks, reduce stroke, reduce Alzheimer's, you know, the dementia, the memory problems that we none of us want to get, and reduces cancer. And the second thing is nothing you try to do is ever too late. Meaning that, mm. you know, if you're 75, listen, there you're the one that really needs to be active. And you're the one that really needs to eat better. You know, it's not just for, uh, for you know, young folks. It's really the, uh, all of us uh, can do a lot of things to improve our health. And we can improve it very quickly and with very small amounts of effort. You know, Clarence, you mentioned that the information's out there for people. But I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the information's not out there equally for people. There are, there's a health literacy issue and a health equity issue about how people access that information. And there are communities right here in the Twin Cities that don't have access to that information, either that it's not translated properly or not being delivered in a culturally competent way. So a big focus of us here has been making sure that these communities and populations are receiving information the way that they want to receive information. And that's so important. I was just thinking, I was just thinking, I want to go back. I think that's excellent. And I thank you for that. I was thinking, I was kind of laughing when Steve was talking about one less bite. Uh, help you out I'm, i've never heard that before you know mm -hmm. so maybe next time i i'm eating a hot dog i can think about you know one less bite might help my my cardiovascular health to be better so i, yeah. I we will we, we'll, we'll use that as a slogan for some mm -hmm. of our work in in the community one less bite <laughs> or a different bite or, or a different bite. Or a, we're all going to eat believe bite. me yeah <laughs> right yeah. You know, some people have said, you know, there are certain certain foods that, you know, just in general kind of avoid. You know, I personally love ice cream. Okay. I, I love ice cream. And so tomorrow I say, hey, you know, it's good for your mental health. You know. <laughs> anyway, so I wanna for our listening audience, I wanna give you kind of a sense of where we sit with um cardiovascular health uh, numbers wise. So heart disease is the leading cause for men, women, people, and most racial and ethnic groups in the United States. However, what's interesting is heart disease and stroke are not the number one cause of death in the state of, of Minnesota. It's cancer. However, if heart and stroke together as cardiovascular, then it pops to the number one cause of, of death in, um, in Minnesota. One person dies every 34 seconds in the United States from cardiovascular disease. So, you know, just think about, you know, the core of this over this podcast. Cost. So heart disease costs the United States about $230 billion each year. Certainly, between um, it might have been even a little more um, during the um, the pandemic. Stroke belt. Okay, so you mentioned the compass, Steve. Another would be just south in general, 
in the United States. So there are geographic mm -hmm. variations of, um, of disease, heart disease and stroke. And for years, uh, there has been what's called the stroke belt in the United States, which is a swath running all the way from like DC, think of this listeners, all the way DC, all the way down south and almost as far as Texas. That has been consistently the stroke belt mm -hmm. in in the United States, which obviously is linked to cardiovascular overall. Um, so I think overall, most people, to your point, Justin, understand not only the, or at least heard the factors, have heard countless times that heart disease and stroke are, you know, major killers in the United States. As far as prevention is concerned, though, they've perhaps heard the, the messages, but it's key how they act on them. Any, any, any thoughts on how people act, which gets into this whole idea of human behavior? Well, I think one of the, the keys to that is trying to make the healthier choice the easier choice. And so making it a little mm -hmm. bit easier to find access to exercise, trying to make it so that unhealthy food isn't incredibly cheap and healthy food isn't incredibly expensive, or that it's easier to find that information. I always think of menu labeling like, since people have started putting calorie counts on on foods at restaurants, uh, I, I pay more attention. So I think other people probably do too. Mm -hmm. So making that step for the healthier choice easier, I think is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. That's a great point, Justin. And you know, one of the issues is that uh, now at the end of the pandemic, about 60% of the calories we consume every day in this country are ultra processed foods the hot dogs, the cookies, the chips, the pizzas. And those things uh, directly lead to, um, to you know, over overweight, high blood pressure, lots of salt, heart attacks, strokes, dementia. But some very disturbing things. Stan, you mentioned some numbers a minute ago. If you look at, uh, you know, I, I told you it's 60% of the calories, but of our adolescents and young adults, it's about two thirds of their calories are ultra processed foods. And you say, how are we doing this? Well, then someone recently looked at school lunches and 64% of the calories in a school lunch for grade schoolers are ultra processed foods. And somebody said, oh my gosh, we've got to have kids bring their lunch to school, which 52% of kids do. But guess what? Their ultra processed food calorie count was even higher in the foods they bring from home. You know, mom and dad are busy. They throw something in the bag and the lunch bag and they you know, go to school. So we're, we're teaching our kids, we're actually teaching our kids to be, eat wrong and have disease. And it's very unfortunate. That's you know, Aaron, Aaron brings up a great, a great point. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that, that overall that health is, is a priority? For, for people, you know, part of it is, um, you know, for, for youth, to your point, Steve, um, I've come to believe that um, health is kind of like the illusion of immortality for, for young people. It's like we, as, you know, mid to older, um, we understand it or we embrace it, but youth you know, like if you tell them, you know, you got to watch this or do this or do that, they'll say, you know what, I'm more worried about how I look and the zits on my face and bad breath. You know, you can worry all you want about the, all the other stuff, but, you know, I have the illusion, they, they have the illusion of mortality. However, however, what we have seen of late is that um, younger people, when they see their their uh, family members, friends, older people passing away from these these types of diseases, that's when they start to improve the thing. When they see the effects, that's when they take it in themselves from a human behavior perspective. I Go was, ahead, uh, Clarence. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna just say, and I thank you for that. I think one of the things that as we were talking about this issue, and I thank you, Aaron, for that for that question. But I think that uh, 
do we care about health? Do we honestly care about health? Or do we think that we're going to create a appeal that we can just take? I mean, do, do, do we, do we continue this unhealthy practice? It's because we believe that there with research is going to show us that there's going to be a pill that we can take that will, you know, will uh, take away the, the uh, belly fat, you know, mm -hmm. will make us make our hearts stronger. Those kind of things. Is that, is that kind of our, perception as Americans? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. just, I'm asking a deeper, deeper question. You know, is that, is mm -hmm. that what we're thinking? And that's why we're so uh, resistant to making these, these, uh, these changes. Mm -hmm. Great point, Clarence. The uh, many patients come to me and say, doc, give me the pill so I can eat what I want. And I have to point out to them that, you know, the studies have shown if you take the pill, say the cholesterol lowering pill, a statin or something like that, your numbers look better, but if you don't eat healthy, your heart attack rate, your heart failure rate, where your heart fails to pump well enough to meet your body's demands, and your cardiac death rate doesn't change. Mm. So the pill does not negate a lifestyle, in other words. Fantastic. Thank you. So talk about genetics a little bit. Like, okay, so I'll, you know, for listening to us, I'm on a statin medication. I remember going to um, my physician and they said, and at one point, this was years ago now, my numbers were off. Okay. So he said, Stan, what I want you to do for the next six months is I really want to have you focus on your lifestyle, your eating, exercise, et cetera, et cetera. So I did. I exercised like a crazy person. My dog thought I was nuts that we were going for, you know, three <laughs> walks a day instead of one. Um, I ate nothing but air for, you know, six, <laughs> for six months. Um, and then I went back um, and uh, to have numbers checked again. And lo and behold, um, they were actually worse. Um, and so my physician said, you know what? Thank you, mom and dad. Okay. So in your case, you know, it's like, you know, you've got, and, you know, I had, you know, history in, in, in my family. And so um, the cholesterol medication I have been on and it has, has helped. But to your point, yes, I do maintain, you know, an exercise regimen. I do watch carefully what, what I eat in collaboration with that, um, medication. Um, all right, so let's move into the next arena here, okay, which um, which is acute treatment. In other words, all right, it's one thing if if we try to prevent. In other words, what we're, you know, we're trying to prevent people from coming down the river by doing things upstream, which mm -hmm. we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Now they're already downstream, all right, and we're pulling them out of the river, mm -hmm. and we have to, you know, admit them to um, hospital because they've um, suffered um, a heart attack or or stroke so um, let's talk about this kind of the, this next this next wave of acute treatment which Steve you probably are the best to speak to us yes the acute treatment the heart attack the stroke, you know, the acute events where patients get chest pain, it, uh, it's interesting in that, you know, we, you talked about your numbers, Stan, and if you look at people's numbers, say, when they come in for their first heart attack, their first stroke, their first visit to the emergency room for chest pain, their LDL cholesterol, which is the delivery cholesterol, is 105. Now, I speak to patients almost every day and say, you know, if your cholesterol is 105, uh, I'll say it's too high. And they'll say, oh my gosh, uh, I've been to seeing doctors for a decade and no one's ever told me it's too high. I say, yeah, they probably tell you it's normal. They say, yeah, they say it's normal. Well, we confuse the term normal and average. And while their cholesterol may be average, it's certainly not normal. So we have a lot of people coming in with these acute events. And that raises the risk for patients. It raises the cost tremendously, of course, when you're treating the problem rather than preventing the problem. And that's why we have, you know, acute heart attack networks. Uh, and that's one of the things that all hospitals are judged on. How quickly do you get a patient that has a heart attack into the emergency room and into the x-ray lab where you can open their artery with a stent or a balloon if need be? 
And that's uh, something that Justin certainly has helped uh, you know, define around the country and you too, Stan, with all your work at the, at the Department of Health. But these are the numbers we, we live by. And so we spend a lot of effort and energy and time and resources, you know, getting teams ready to treat these acute events because they are continuing to happen. So I have a question I'd like to ask. What about, what about the silent heart attacks? I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, you talk about the acute events. What about what about the silent ones? I mean, are, are, there, are there people walking around that have had, have had a heart attack and they don't even know it? And, and, and what would yeah. the symptoms be? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Uh, there are about half the heart attacks are found later on on a routine visit, electrocardiogram or a sound wave test of the heart or electrical activity of the heart. And we say, oh, you probably have had a heart attack. We see evidence here of damage and it may have been just, you thought you had indigestion or, um, you know, upset stomach or something like that, or maybe saw something you ate that you got hot and short of breath and sweaty, but that's not uncommon. The other side of that is, and this is part of the problem, is that we all see the people that come into the hospital and they get a stent and they go back home and they're on the golf course a week later. They sell this is, you know, they're, nobody's worried about a heart attack, but they don't realize that about a third of the people, that's their first symptom of a heart attack is death. What we call sudden cardiac death, which by definition is you're dead within an hour of the onset of your symptoms. And those people, we, you know, you never really hear about much except, oh, Fred, you know, he woke up dead last week. He was at the doctor the week before and they did a treadmill and he did great, but he died. I wonder what it was. It couldn't have been his heart. It looked fine. The problem with heart attacks is we can't predict them. They're not like babies. They come nine months later and you don't know when they're going to come. Yeah. Yeah. Justin, you know, um, you, you certainly can, can relate to this. Well, these years we've, we've had in the state of Minnesota, and there are other states that do this too, um, state plans that, um, that focus on, on, on prevention, acute treatment, disease management. One thing that I was, I was struck about in the development of ours well these years is um, it always appeared to be that acute treatment was frankly the easier of the three arenas to deal with because typically you say okay if if somebody has an event they go to the hospital and guess what the medical teams take over thank you very much okay and, and there's you know there are certain things that that are watched for comments on that you know it's like from a heart from the heart association i i don't know if you really focus that much on acute treatment but more maybe perhaps on the other ends of the spectrum, prevention of disease management. We actually focus quite a bit on the acute treatment. We, we talk a lot about chains of survival and systems-based uh, care for those acute uh, conditions. Heart attacks, stroke, cardiac arrest, those are time-critical events. And that, that means that there's a window of treatment between onset of symptoms. And if you get some treatment in that window, you have a very good chance of surviving and walking away. And outside of that window, it really kind of plummets, the outcomes plummet. So there are things that you can do pre-hospital to engage that chain of survival, whether that's making sure that you know the signs and symptoms of a stroke and when to call 911. Um, there are a lot of people that are having a stroke and they just feel odd. And so they wait it out a little bit and that window is closing. Same thing with cardiac arrest and making sure that people know what to do. And if you see someone to engage uh, 911, start doing CPR, look for an AED. So those acute treatment plans have a pre-hospital and a public awareness component that's so important because it lets people know how to start that chain of survival. And that really is what can increase those those odds of surviving. Yeah, great points. Great, great points. Um, you mentioned CPR. Let's, why don't you take that a little bit further? Um, I know that you've been involved with it, um, for instance, um, getting um, high school students um, trained in, in CPR, but um, tell me more. Yeah, we find that bystander CPR, we, we know that that can double or triple the chances of survival of someone having a cardiac arrest out of the hospital. And just making sure that areas of the country and communities have more people train in CPR, more access to AEDs. You see the survival rate of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is so all over the place and it's dismally small in some areas. And then some areas like around Seattle, Washington, it's remarkably high. 
Minnesota is doing pretty well too. And that has to do with how many of the public are trained in CPR, how many AEDs are out there, how many people know how to do that. So you mentioned getting high schoolers trained. That's something that the, the Heart Association did here in Minnesota a while ago. We actually changed state statute to require a CPR training before students graduate from high school. Just pointing to evidence that shows that as soon as people have been trained once, and actually has that psychomotor skills component, which means actually physically seeing how hard you have to press down in the chest. Once people have been trained in that once and practiced once, they're far more likely to act in a situation that comes up. So making sure that that consistent training is available is a key part of our strategy. So for our listeners, um, besides you know the normal policy-oriented angles on uh, getting CPR out there, um, for our listeners, if they're interested in getting trained in CPR, who should they contact? They could certainly look up the uh, the CPR training on the Heart Association's website. There are often community sites that do that. And for people that don't know, now we're really pushing hands-only CPR. If you're not a medical professional and you don't need to be certified, we found that people are were most leery about acting because they were nervous about the breaths, either doing it wrong or putting their mouth on someone else. And yet the data showed that if someone collapses and their heart's not beating, they've got somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes of oxygenated blood already in their body, just not pumping. So if you see somebody drop and you call 911 and you start pushing hard and fast in the center of the chest, you're already circulating that oxygenated blood to start protecting and preserving the organ. So there's several different ways to get trained on CPR, but if you're nervous about putting your mouth on someone or doing it wrong, uh, the hands-only CPR is actually quite effective and quite easy to do. So look for trainings like that. Great, so I, great. My question, my question to you is this, is that we've got a lot of people in this country. How many of us are walking around with uh, uh, coronary artery disease? I mean, is it a lot of us? I mean, is it, I mean you know, mm -hmm. it, it's a major issue, but how many of us... You know, and then if that's so, what are some of the things that we should be looking at? Yes, we do have a lot of uh, folks, you know, looking at, unfortunately, some of the wars we've had, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, and looking in that these young men, women that died in doing autopsies found they've already started to have heart disease in their late teens and early 20s. It doesn't show up, so to speak, until you're 50, 60, 70 years old. I mean, you don't get symptoms, but that's after years and years or decades of being there. So what we should look at is, you know, the things we talked about earlier, your lifestyle is really so important. You know, the as Justin mentioned, the, uh, the Hearts, uh, American Heart Association's Essential 8 now, there's a lot of measurements in there though. You know, there's blood pressure measurement, there's cholesterol measurement, there's weight, there's fasting blood sugar. And people don't want to get measured. You know, people don't want to stand on a scale even, they much less get their blood drawn. Mm -hmm. So it's more important to focus on the lifestyle issues. You know, how are you eating? How physically active are you? And again, very small amounts of activity and very small changes in eating for healthier have been shown to be quite beneficial. So just uh, I want to not be true for cardiovascular, it's true for other chronic diseases as well. I mean, you know, a lot of the things that we do for for heart disease and, and stroke um, can help prevent other things as well. Go ahead, Clint. Yeah. So just I want you 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 started mentioning the the the, the disparities in, in in among groups of people. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, because I think that that you know. Uh, we talk about it, but let, we want to talk about it at, with health chatter, which yeah. means that you tell us you tell us the real deal, you know, because a lot of times when we talk to people, it, you know, it's kind of like, you know, coached in, you know, really technical language. But you I want you to just really share what you really, really feel. OK, sure. Okay. Okay. Well, like every other area of health, we see these disparities that certain populations and certain demographics and certain communities are hit harder with heart disease and cardiac issues than others. And some of those are modifiable lifestyle choices. Some of those are genetics. Some of those are access to care and access to other social determinants of health. And other things are, are that are tied into that are also built in structural racism. There have been things that block other folks out of achieving their optimal health. And that's a, a, a newer focus for organizations. And it's certainly a focus that AHA is committed to. But even right here in the Twin Cities, we see that 
we look at hypertension as a primary risk factor for stroke and hypertension rates in certain communities and certain populations are off the charts when compared to others. And so that's where we've been focusing a lot of our work is what does that mean? What does that look like? Do we need more community resources there? Mm -hmm. Are the providers that those folks seeing, are there barriers there for them to treat those, those populations and those communities? And that's where we've been sort of upping, investing our money and investing some of our community health work and trying to close those gaps, making sure that if there's anything we can do to move the needle to make those communities more healthy and remove those barriers, that's where we want to focus. Thank you. You know, I think, you know, overall, the more we just, um, no pun intended here, keep the pulse going on all these different things combined, I think uh, we will see greater effects. Let's move into um, the third theme here, which is disease management. So, all right. So now um, you're dealing with someone, I'll just take one person, who's <clears throat> who's either had an event or has been identified at higher risk. What do we do for disease management? And we'll get into the prevention twist on that in a second, but disease management going forward. Steve, what do you think? Well, the we try to get to the disease as early as we can. You know, the blood pressure that's high, the cholesterol that's high, the blood sugar that's high, not wait until it's a heart attack or a cancer or Alzheimer's. So those things, I think that if we, um, I encourage patients and people to assume they have a new part-time job and that's called their health. And that means that they really need to spend a little bit of time every day, it could be 15 minutes on things like analyzing how they're eating, analyzing how active they are, maybe get a blood pressure cuff, which hooks to your phone. And uh, if you don't know how to do that, ask your five-year-old granddaughter and she'll show you how to do it, you know, and uh, check your blood pressure. And those things go a long, long way because if you find the problem earlier, you can. It's so much easier. It's so much easier to treat and to change the direction of it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting during the COVID pandemic uh, for friends, colleagues, um, etc. One of the the statements that I would say is, on a daily basis, you need to do a personal risk assessment. And guess what? That's not just for COVID. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's for, you know, all these different things that we deal with, you know, as human beings, you know, we don't die just from COVID, you know, or we don't get sick just from, mm -hmm. from COVID. We get uh, sick from other things as well. So personal risk, continual personal risk assessment, mm -hmm. I think can, can certainly go a long way. That's All a great right. point, Stan. And you know, one other thing just to add that I think is enlightening is, you know, we have these risk calculators for heart disease. You know, it looks at your cholesterol and your blood pressure and your age and, you know, how active you are. But they've also applied those risk calculators for heart disease to other diseases like cancer or, or dementia, like Alzheimer's. And they are just as accurate at predicting these other things. So the point is that all these risk factors are the same. They just manifest in different ways. You know, you may get a heart attack. I may get a cancer. You know, someone else may get dementia. And uh, it, it's interesting because we all think, well, they're different. They're different factors. Well, they're not. And, you know, somebody we none of us want any of those diseases. But the least worrisome to people, unfortunately, is heart disease. The most worrisome is the cancer and the, and the Alzheimer's. It's hard to talk about disease management without talking about access to medical care that folks have too. Chronic disease can be just that, chronic, if people have access to care. And never, not everybody has the same access to care. Uh, during the pandemic, we really noticed that we were backing some federally health, qualified health centers and community clinics that were trying to deal with their hypertension control rates remotely with patients. And what they found was they needed grant money to hire additional community health workers to do that outreach, to actually be able to connect with, with patients on a regular basis. And so having access to your healthcare provider and having access to care and resources generally makes a big difference in how people are able to manage the disease. Yeah, those are really golden, golden words. And it's become more and more difficult, especially when people are trying to navigate um, with health insurance, but that's, Clarence. Yeah, I think one of the things I want to ask, and this is kind of maybe a little bit off, but uh, how does oral health affect your cardiovascular health, or does it? Oral health mouth? Yes. 
Yes, good good question. It um, it does lead. It is associated. And it's because if you have, uh, you know, we have a lot of bacteria in our mouth. If you have infections, gum disease, cavities that have infections, that leads to what is called inflammation, which is an irritation of the tissues in your mouth, but also all over the body. And if you have narrowing of the arteries to your brain or to your heart, they get affected also, and it increases your risk of a stroke or a heart attack. Excellent. Thank you. So, Justin, um, for years and years, as as you know, I I was working with you. We were involved with um, another yet another theme in the cardiovascular health arena, namely policy, policy development. It's like um, I've often said that um, things that become a law. You know, there there's a lot of background that goes into into that ahead of time, and it's also involving uh, changing norms. But what's your, what's your overall sense of cardiovascular health policy and policy development? Well, I think that you know, for the number of years that you and I worked on it, Stan, which is wow, it's been well, over ten years we worked on that. It's, I've been at the Heart Association a long time. We really focused on state legislative efforts. And I think that that time we were talking about how that's where the opportunities were. There was less opportunity at the federal level and more opportunity at the state level. And I think that pendulum has swung even further where now we see even more health policy opportunities available on the local level. Whether we're talking about funding for safe transportation and active spaces or tobacco policy has gotten really exciting, uh, raising the age of the minimum age to buy tobacco products from 18 to 21 started in cities. We did it in 60 plus cities before it was acceptable to bring it forward at the state level. We had sort of a critical mass. And we're seeing a lot of excitement right now around tobacco flavoring on the local level, mm-hmm. um, tobacco couponing at the local level, those things that really cross over too into health equity, watching that communities that are targeted by the tobacco industry are getting away with that through sort of local policy and local regulation. So I think the, the real excitement for some of these things is happening at the local level. Steve, thoughts on that, on policy? Yes, the, um, you know, these ultra processed foods we talked about earlier, I think we need some help with that in that, you know, we all eat a lot of them, as I pointed out. The problem is there's been addiction uh, studies and we get addicted to these ultra processed foods because there's a pow. You eat one, you get a pow of sugar and a pow of fat, mm-hmm. and it keeps you coming back. Remember the old commercial, bet you can't eat just one? Mm-hmm. You know, that was uh, that's a real issue. And so we, I think we need some protection against that. And uh, just like with smoking or seatbelts. And by that, I mean, and Justin knows a lot more about this than I do, but sugar-sweetened beverages for our kids. You know, we raise the price, they'll drink less. And that's a good, I think that would be the single, I mean, Justin, what do you think? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And it goes back to what I was saying before. Some of that isn't, it doesn't need to be dictating to people what to do, but making the healthier choice easier. Mm -hmm. Um, For a few years now in Minnesota, the Heart Association has been working on a healthy kids meal bill. And all it does is it makes the default drink for a kid's meal milk or water instead of a soda. You can still get a soda, but rather than that being the default, you have to ask for it. So instead of getting a soda and asking for milk, just by switching that, we've seen cities and states that have done that, and they can show less consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages just by making that easier. We're not telling people what to do. We're not taking soda away from anybody, but people tend to do what's easier. And parents tend to do what's the default beverages on some of those situations. Yeah, so that's a that's a great point. There's just policy things that we can do that just make things easier for folks, and that might be all we need to do sometimes. And that I think that angle of it really mm-hmm. can um, can focus in on human behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. It's, uh, human behavior. If it's easier, mm-hmm. let's I'll do it. You know? But there's big big uh, overcome things to overcome. The profit margin on ultra processed food is about 90%. The profit yeah. margin on a fruit or vegetable is about 10%. Mm. So if I was a businessman, what would I want to sell? Right. And that's that's a tough one to look at uh, regarding policy development, for sure. All right. So here's another another theme that I was, I was thinking about, and I kind of combine them all together in the cardiovascular arena here, technology, medications, 
and gadgets. Okay, gadgets, namely, you know, things that you know you can wear on your on your wrist or you can carry with you or whatever. Okay, technology, medications, and gadgets. Steve, take it away. Yeah, we do. I think of all those, uh, the gadgets may make the most difference. And by that, I mean, if we have gadgets that really interact with us and interact you know, machine to machine to our doctor's office or something like that. Remember, we've had some very good gadgets for a long time that nobody wants to use. Think of the bathroom scale or the bathroom mirror. <laughs> no one <laughs> wants to pay attention to those. But uh, these other things could be very, very helpful, especially with artificial intelligence. Justin, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree. Some gadgets, of the, you know, that is gadgets. some of the, the interesting gadgets coming out. You know, we're doing a lot of work with self-monitoring blood pressure, and the Bluetooth-enabled cuffs make it so easy to mm -hmm. check your blood pressure. You can keep a record of it in your phone. I have one, and before I go see my doctor, I just email her a PDF of all my blood pressure readouts, and should we talk about it at the at the appointment that way? Also, just sort of being able to interact with your doctor, you know, through through my chart or those portals where mm -hmm. I can ask a question without having to make an appointment. I can sometimes get a referral without needing to make an appointment, like making that a little bit easier and more efficient is, is exciting. And then we can't close this topic without talking about telemedicine. Like telemedicine was already a trend pre COVID and then everyone just had to do that. And so the ability to not have to travel four hours to see a doctor or talk to a doctor, I mean, that's, that's a huge, impact to rural communities, other communities that have transportation issues. So making telemedicine more available is, is going to be easier for patients as well. Yeah. So that's gadgets. I mean, one, one thing I can say about gadgets is it also is connected to human behavior. People get bored with certain gadgets after a while, or they get tired of, of using them. And so gadgets have typically have a, um, a lifestyle um, or a lifespan to them. Yeah. Um, we're going to be getting, we're actually, uh, Steve, one of your colleagues, uh, La Princess Brewer, mm -hmm. um, is going to be talking about uh, gadgets on one of our shows coming up. Um, yeah. Medications. Steve, take it away. I mean, have medications gotten better? Have they gotten about the same? Are we? Yeah, are medications we have really improved. I mean, some of these newer drugs that treat diabetes and also lower the risk for heart uh, disease and help you lose weight. They do it all with the same pill. Those have really gotten good. Uh, but again, a pill doesn't overcome a lifestyle and we need to have a combination of the two for people. Yeah. Yeah. Justin thoughts on medications. Does AHA get involved with that at all or? We don't usually, but we do always talk about how once we get that public awareness and get people to know their numbers and they realize that they do have high blood pressure, what are we doing to connect them with being able to get that treatment, whether it's medication or some other sort of medical treatment? And so we've just started getting into the area of some of our public community health uh, efforts have a referral attached to them to a pro provider that we've worked out before. But um, yeah, making sure that that second step is available is a challenge. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to I, I I want to thank both of you, Steve and Justin, for being a part of our health chatter because that's what we've been doing. We've been chattering, and uh, it's I've I've learned a lot. I've got I've got a lot of questions, but I know we have to end our show. But uh, where do we go from here? Just real quickly, what do you think? Where do we go from here? Justin, go ahead. <laughs> okay, all right, thanks. <laughs> and that, that was that was a, that was a, a big ball, wasn't it? I, I do yeah, it's a loaded like, yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it was. I think that prevention is absolutely going to be key. I think Steve also agrees with that. We just have to figure out how to get it to people on their terms. Information the way that they want to receive it, information and access the way that they're comfortable with. Um, we started in Minnesota really focusing on blood pressure awareness and access to screenings outside of a medical situation. So we've partnered with community organizations, churches and community centers um, where people are already going and they're already comfortable. Um, and maybe that's a space where we can step in and get more people to be aware and get more health messaging out there. So I think it, accessing people where they're at and how they want to be reached is going to be important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Certainly the other two things to add, number one would be, I really think that, you know, some legislation to limit some of these things that we, we take into our body that hurt us would be very helpful. And number two, and this is probably the most important is let's try to start teaching our kids the joys of eating correctly 
and the joys of being active physically. And uh, we're not doing that, I don't think, in the grade schools because it's been shown once you become a young adult, you're pretty well set for your physical activity and your eating habits. It's too late to change. So it's like trying to take somebody who's 45 years old and say, I'm going to teach you math and calculus. They never had a math course in their life. You know, we got to start young in life and, and help them enjoy it, not make yeah. it make them think it's something that's, oh, I've got to do this. This is a horrible, you know, food to eat or something. You know, I always find it interesting. Whenever I say the word walk mm-hmm. to my dog, he he goes ecstatic. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's just like, you know, okay, then what is it? What mm-hmm. is it about us as humans that we can't get ecstatic mm-hmm. about that? Interesting. Mm-hmm. It would be an interesting. We're, we're going to have a, a show on on pets coming up. All right. Final question is this: What specifically do you think that our health chatter podcast and our ability to get certain information out there? What is it that we can do, or are we doing it? Well, I certainly think you're doing it. I, I do think that people don't realize how small of an effort it takes to improve their health. Tiny. By that, I mean, like we talked earlier, one bite can make a difference. But also, when you're active, physically active, it's been shown, it's just amazing. But someone did a study on how little activity will improve your risk for diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's, cancer. Two seconds. Two seconds of activity. Your vigorous activity can change your risk. And my God, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's something that we need to, I mean, I, I don't like to exercise, but I do uh, run up and down the stairs at Mayo Clinic and I love it because Mayo Clinic pays me to do it because I'm at work. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So for our listeners, um, first of all, I, I encourage you to read uh, Steve's book, Live Younger, Longer. Great, great read. It certainly addresses many of the uh, the prevention aspects of cardiovascular health. I want to thank uh, Human Partnership, who helps us um, by sponsoring our uh, Health Chatter podcast with all of you. And I want to thank, really thank, uh, my longtime colleagues, uh, Steve Kopechke and, and uh, Justin Bell, for joining us. And we reserve the right to, to call you back and have you on, a, on another show because to cover this topic in a mere 40, 45 minutes is quite difficult. So thank you. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. We are now, for all of you out there, continue health chatting away. Next time we'll be talking about nutrition. So long for now. Mm-hmm.